0: Welcome back, everyone, to our Sunday School series. We're continuing our look at the book of Zechariah. We're going to turn to Zechariah chapter 11, and our text for this morning is going to be verses 1 through 8 of chapter 11. Zechariah chapter 11, verses 1 through 8. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that fire may consume your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedars have fallen. Those mighty trees have been destroyed. Wail, O oaks of Bashan, for that impenetrable thicket has been felled. The sound of the wailing of the shepherds, for they have been destroyed, they and their majesty. The sound of the roaring like lions, for the majesty of the Jordan has been destroyed. Thus says Yahweh my God, shepherd this flock. "...doomed to destruction. Those who have purchased them... kill them... and they are not punished. Those who sell them... will say, Blessed be Yahweh... that I might become rich. Their shepherds... do not have compassion... upon them. Therefore... I will not have compassion again... upon those who dwell in the land... declares Yahweh. And behold... I will cause each man to fall into the hand of his neighbor and into the hand of his king, and they shall utterly crush the land, and I will not rescue them from their hand. So I became a shepherd to the flock doomed to destruction, hence the affliction of the flock. And I took for myself two staffs, for the one I called favor, and for the other I called unity. And I shepherded the flock. Then I utterly destroyed the three shepherds in one month. And my soul was weary of them. And also their soul despised me. All right, well, this is God's word. And this is what we're going to be taking a look at this morning. But before we do that, let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, God, we thank you for Zechariah. We thank you for your word in general. And we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your instruction today. Um, As we look at this passage, as we look at um, various things that you have to tell us here, Lord, I pray that you'd make your message clear to us and that we would be able to take lessons away from it and apply them to our lives. In the holy and precious name of Jesus, we pray, amen. All right, well, just to set a bit of the context for you here to remind you of where we're at in Zechariah, we had a little bit of a what I call kind of an excursus last week where we were sort of looking at the Bible from a bird's eye view or a big picture view of the structure of the Old Testament canon and the New Testament canon and some of the Exodus themes that we see sort of intertwined throughout all of scripture. Uh, Today we're turning back to a verse-by-verse look at the text, right? And in Zechariah at this point we are in what's called the first prophetic oracle. All right, that is chapters 9 through 11. So we're, we're in the last part of this prophetic oracle here. And in this oracle, Zechariah is dealing with the false shepherds, which are the bad leaders of Israel. And we're going to take a look at that more carefully here. But just so you know, we are, of course, approaching the end of Zechariah. We've only got a few chapters left. Uh, chapter 14, I believe, is the last chapter. And uh, you will remember that a few chapters ago, we had been dealing with uh, a, a description of the false shepherds, right? There were bad leaders in Israel that Zechariah was dealing with, and he called them bad shepherds, and we saw that God himself is actually the good shepherd. And then in chapter 10, we were looking at uh, promises of destruction and judgment coming upon the other nations if Israel is faithful. And now what we see in chapter 11 is that judgment being more explicitly pronounced on the shepherds. And what we're going to see next week is that not only is this judgment applied to the shepherds, but actually there is judgment that's going to happen uh, on the people of Israel themselves. And we'll see why that's the case today. But let's look at chapter 11 here. Remember, we're in the first prophetic oracle of Zechariah, which means that he is pronouncing judgment. And, And I find that it's really interesting to see that how this judgment is expressed. Because look at it, these first few verses. There's a lot of poetry going on, a lot of symbolism. And I'll point out some of that as we go here. So let's look at verse one. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that fire may consume your cedars. And as you continue with verse two, you can see that there's, there's judgment being pronounced on trees. <laughs> and you might think, okay, why are we having judgment pronounced on trees here? Well, of course, it's not actually being pronounced on the trees themselves. Rather, the trees are sort of symbols pointing to something else. Of course, we've seen that a million times in Zechariah thus far, and this is not the last time we'll see this. Just as a bit of background, though, uh, you may have heard of the region of Lebanon before if you've read much of the earlier Old Testament narrative, particularly in 1st and 2nd Samuel, and most particularly 1st and 2nd Kings. Um, I'm reading through 1 Kings right now for one of my Hebrew readings class, reading it through in the the Hebrew Bible. And one of the things that kind of struck me is the fact that Lebanon shows up quite a bit in the narrative of King Solomon. And the reason for that is because King Solomon, when he was instructed to build the temple to Yahweh, the very first temple, he did that using the great cedars of Lebanon. He actually contacted the king of that region, Hiram, and Hiram sent him tons and tons of great big cedars from Lebanon. And that is because Lebanon in the the ancient world was known as being the place that had the the most high quality wood you could get. Big, giant, rich, beautiful looking trees. And for, for Solomon, he wanted the temple, of course, to be the most beautiful building he could build. So he contacted Hiram to get the most quality wood that he could find. And that was the cedars of Lebanon. Now, Lebanon, relative to Israel, is north of Israel. And so when we have a description here in verse 1 of of Lebanon opening its doors so that it might be consumed, what's being described here is judgment coming from the north. That is, this judgment that's going to come upon these wicked shepherds that we're going to see in a moment, this judgment is going to come from the north and is going to sort of, if you will, fly through, burning as it goes, right through the great forest of Lebanon, this impenetrable thicket that we see in verse two, right? This great forest is going to fall. And of course, when this happens, as we see in verse three, there's going to be the sound of wailing coming from the shepherds because their majesty or their glory is going to be destroyed. Now, the glory that's being described there is the shepherd's glory in their leadership. That is sort of their leadership position, Because the shepherds, of course, as you can imagine, the the picture of a shepherd is someone who guides the flock, right? So we're talking about leaders right now. These bad shepherds that are going to show up here in a couple of verses, they are leaders in Israel. Now, we don't know specifically how many. Perhaps there was three of them, as we see referenced in verse 8. Or maybe that's a symbolic number. We don't know. But in any case, there are leaders in Israel, leaders in Jerusalem, who are sort of helping with the uh, ruling of the people, And those leaders are wicked. They're not good leaders. And they are sort of glorying in their own majesty and in their own power. And what's going to happen is when God's judgment comes upon these wicked leaders, as it flies through and destroys the great forests of Lebanon, there's going to be wailing coming from these shepherds because all the glory that they took in their leadership is going to be gone at the snap of a finger as soon as God decides to bring the hammer down. There's going to be wailing when their glory is taken away. And it's going to be like the sound of, the, of a wailing lion, we're told, in verse 3. Because the glory of the Jordan is destroyed. As a lion loses its feeding ground, so these wicked shepherds will wail because they have lost their place of profit. And that's what we see as we move into verse 4 here, as we learn about the shepherd's guilt. We've we've just learned about God's judgment, right? It's coming. Verses 1 through 3 is God's judgment on the shepherds. It's on its way. It's coming from the north. It's going to come after them. It's going to destroy their splendor. Now, why is God going to do this? We learn about that in verse 4. Here's the guilt that the shepherds have uh, that's warranting God's judgment. Verse 4, thus says Yahweh my God, shepherd the flock doomed to destruction. God describes his people, Israel, as a flock of sheep doomed to destruction. The shepherd is leading them to an edge of a cliff, and they're going to fall off, and they're going to die. They're doomed to destruction because of their poor leadership. At least that's what we know so far. It's not only their poor leadership that's dooming them, but we'll learn about that in a little bit. Verse 5, what's up with these shepherds? What are they doing that's so bad? Why are they bad leaders? Why are they wicked leaders? Here's why. Their shepherds are those who purchase them and kill them and they're not punished. Those who have sold them will say, Blessed be Yahweh that I might become rich. And their shepherds have no compassion upon them. So the current shepherds these current leaders have doomed the flock of Israel for destruction because in their leadership, they are leading them toward death. Right? They have purchased them, and they die, or they kill them, and they're not punished. Right? These, these leaders are, are leading Israel in such a way that they're going to bring death upon them. And how do they do this? They do this because they say, blessed be Yahweh that I might become rich. In other words, what these leaders are doing, the way that they're leading the Israelites is that they're using the Israelites as an opportunity to accumulate wealth for themselves. This leadership that is being enacted by the wicked shepherds is a power play to gain for themselves wealth, riches, and of course, as we saw in verse 3, majesty, power, glory, honor. These leaders that Israel has, whoever they may be, we're not told their names, but whatever these leaders are, they are selfish leaders. They're not the kind of good, godly leadership that we see in Scripture. Actually, as I was looking at this passage, I was reminded of some of the work that we did. Uh, in our Ten Commandments class, you remember we looked at what the confession says about each commandment. What's forbidden, what is required, and so on. And I was reminded about the commandment, you shall honor your father and mother. And you'll remember that that commandment that we dealt with has more in view than simply one's father and mother. You don't just submit or honor to honor your father and mother, but rather father and mother is standing in for Any person who's in authority over you, right? You remember that? Any person who's in authority over you. That's what that commandment has in view. And so because of that, then, there are implications. Implications not only of how an inferior is supposed to submit to his superior, but how a superior is supposed to treat the inferior. That is, the commandment about honoring one's father and mother has implications for how leaders ought to treat their subordinates. And what I want to do for you is here just listen to our larger catechism, the Westminster Larger Catechism. Question number 129 asks this in relation to this commandment. It says, what is required of superiors towards their inferiors? So the question is, how are leaders supposed to treat those who are in subjection to them? And here's what the, conf- what the catechism answers. Listen to this. This is what leaders have to do. It is required of superiors, according to that power which they receive from God, and that relation wherein they stand, to love, pray for, and bless their inferiors, to instruct, counsel, and admonish them, countenancing, commending, and rewarding such as do well, and discountenancing, reproving, and chastising such as do ill, protecting and providing for them, All things necessary for soul and body, and by grave, wise, holy, and exemplary carriage to procure glory to God, honor to themselves, and so to preserve that authority which God hath put upon them. First of all, let me just say the Westminster Divines were amazing writers. I love the way they write, it's always so rich, every word is carefully chosen. And you could just spend hours contemplating most of what they write in our catechisms and, of course, the confession of faith. But for the purposes of what we're doing this morning, just think carefully. Notice what all these things that that our Westminster divines are recognizing are part of what leaders are supposed to do with relation to their subordinates. How do leaders treat those that they lead? Well, certainly leaders do not treat them as means to gain wealth or as means to gain power or as means to gain glory. I don't see any of that in the scriptures. In fact, if you look at the way Jesus led, and Jesus is our true leader, right? Because he is our king. That's one of his offices is to be our great king. When Jesus leads, just look at his example on earth. When he leads, what did he do? Did he try to accumulate an earthly kingdom for himself? Did he try to get rich off of the Israelites like these wicked shepherds are doing? No, of course not. He's the good shepherd. And how does the good shepherd lead? Well, the good shepherd leads by washing the disciples' feet. Jesus enacted a kind of servant leadership. A leadership that's willing to get its hands dirty. A leadership that doesn't use subordinates as a way to sort of pass off the dirty jobs. Jesus doesn't use his leadership to get things for himself. He uses it to serve. And that fundamentally is why these wicked leaders are wicked leaders in Zechariah. It's because they're using their leadership purely for selfish, sinful gain. When really they should be having the good of their subordinates in view. That's what the confession, or excuse me, that's what our catechism is getting at here in question 129. All of these details that it spells out are all encompassed under the broad umbrella of making sure that leaders are trying to promote the good of their subordinates, not simply the good of their own selves. Verse 5, they do not have compassion upon them. That is, the shepherds, the wicked shepherds don't have compassion upon the people. Now, here's God's response. Now, here's what God's going to do. This is part of the shepherd's guilt, part of the shepherd's judgment. Therefore, I myself will not have, again, compassion on those who dwell in the land, says Yahweh. Behold, I will cause each man to fall into the hand of his neighbor and into the hand of his king, and the land shall be, and they shall utterly destroy the land, and I will not rescue them." their hand. As you can see, God has zero tolerance for this kind of leadership. See, God knows that leaders can use and abuse their God-given and ordained position to profit. And of course, there's nothing wrong, of course, with seeking one's uh, one's own good while being a leader. But of course, the primary purpose of being a leader is to seek the good of the subordinates. And so any kind of leader that we have Needs to keep this lesson in view. Now, you listening to this, you may find yourself in a position of leadership in some capacity. You may be an elder of this church. You may be a deacon of this church. You may be a CEO. You may be some kind of political leader. You may be a father or a mother. In any situation, right, we can always, in in some capacity, we are all leaders within some group of people. We're all leaders in some way, in some place. And as leaders, we need to take into account what the Scripture says about being a leader. God doesn't want us to seek to be a leader for our own gain. These are the wicked shepherds that do that. There's nothing wrong with making sure that we, of course, are taken care of, we have families to take care of and that sort of thing in and, and whatever position that we have. But we also need to make sure that we are first and foremost promoting the good of our subordinates. Because that is what God wants us to do as leaders. Well, Zechariah's leadership in Jerusalem, these wicked shepherds, they were not doing this. They were not doing this at all. And so in, in verse 7, we have what I like to call the one-man protest. Now, we, we're very familiar with the idea of protests in our own day. Right now, particularly in these last couple of months, there have been a lot of crazy protests going on in the world, lots of, uh, quite frankly, crazy stuff happening in lots of cities. We're familiar with protests, and uh, probably very well familiar now compared to in um, previous years. But our, in our text here, Zechariah is enacted as a one-man protester. He is ordained by God, commanded by God to be a one-man protester. And here's what he's going to do. Here's Zechariah speaking in in verse 7. And I became a shepherd to the flock doomed to destruction. Hence the affliction of the flock. Now, here's what what Zechariah does. He's now entering into this role of a protester. He's like, no, he said, you guys are not shepherding rightly. I'm going to step in and shepherd the people. I'm going to do what needs to be done. God has commanded me to shepherd this flock doomed to destruction, verse 4. And so therefore, verse 7, I'm now stepping into that role. I'm going to be the shepherd. And in this one-man protest, Zechariah makes two signs, two protest signs, if you will. All right, he says in verse 7, And I took for myself two staffs. For the one I called favor, and for the other I called unity. Unity. These are his two signs. You can imagine, they're two staffs, but if we were doing this today, he'd be having two white signs, one in each arm. One says favor, the other says unity. And of course, the favor sign is a sign of God, God's favor on the people, God's favor on the people. And then the next sign, unity, is the unity of the nation, as well as harmony with the other nations surrounding. In fact, this word for unity in the Hebrew could be translated as harmony. So this is just uh, peace, essentially. Unity of the nation together, unity with the other nations, that there's, there's not war going on, essentially. It's a, sort of a peaceful sort of symbol. And so what, what Zechariah does is he's got these two staffs, favor and unity, and he walks around, as we're told in verse 8, for a month, essentially. He, he uses these staffs for a month, and he says, and verse 8, I utterly destroyed the three shepherds in one month. Now what's Zechariah doing there, right? Did he, did he take the staves and he went and beat the leaders for a month, for 30 days? Uh, I, don't, I don't think that's what he's getting at there. I think when Zechariah says that he beat the three shepherds, that is the, the three leaders, or maybe it's a symbolic number, however many leaders there were, um, these wicked leaders, when he, when he says that he beat them or that he uh, destroyed them, What it's saying is that he destroyed them with words, I think. He destroyed them with arguments. He destroyed them with prophetic revelation. That is, in his mind, in Zechariah's mind, he showed the nation the wicked leadership. And he exposed that wicked leadership definitively for all to see. Now let me tell you, this is how you accomplish a legitimate protest, right? You don't go and you beat people. You don't go and loot things. You don't destroy things. That's not how you have a productive protest. No, a, a legitimate protest is one that uses rational arguments. And really for a Christian, a legitimate protest is going to use the word of God, right? Persuasive arguments, something that we can say literally destroys the arguments of the competition, I'm not trying to make any political arguments right now, but all I'm saying is that when you have a prophet of God enacting a one-man protest, you better believe that he's going to be able to present persuasive arguments when the word of God is at work, and he can definitively show the wickedness of leadership and the judgment of God coming upon them. Now, you would expect at this point, right, you'd expect that the people of Israel would be willing to listen to him and having now heard of their wicked leadership, that they would now be willing to overthrow that leadership and put in godly leadership. Leadership that's not going to doom them to destruction, but rather leadership that's going to lead them to life, lead them to the word of God, lead them to faithfulness. Well, unfortunately, that's not what the Israelites do. Surprise, surprise. They don't listen to the prophet of God. Second half of verse 8, And my soul... This is Zechariah speaking. And my soul was weary of them, that is, the people of Israel. And also, their soul detested me. That is, the soul of the people of Israel detested me. Now, if we read verse 8 in isolation, kind of like what we're doing now, disconnected from verse 9, because we're going to deal with that verse next week, you may have the temptation to think that the them being referred to in the second half of verse eight is actually referring back to the three shepherds, saying that the three shepherds um, were, were uh, that Zechariah was weary of the three shepherds and that the three shepherds detested Zechariah. And that, of course, would be possible were it not for the rest of the text that follows where it makes it very clear that it's actually the people of Israel that are um, detesting Zechariah. And we'll, we'll cover those verses next week, but just take my word for that. This is talking about the people of Israel detesting the soul of Zechariah. They don't like what he's doing. Now, you would think right, that people, citizens, would be happy when a prophet of God exposes the wickedness of their leaders. You'd think they'd be happy with that, and they'd say, oh... Rats, I'm sorry, Zechariah, I didn't realize they were so wicked. All right, we'll turn away from them now, and we will follow godly leadership. But that's not what happens. We're told that the people of Israel, when Zechariah exposes the wicked leadership, actually detest Zechariah. The people reject Zechariah too. They don't like what he's doing. The people of Israel in this text... Seem to prefer wicked leadership as opposed to godly leadership. The people preferred to have corrupt leaders that doomed them to destruction. Instead of godly leaders who turned them to God. This is the sin nature at work here. People do not want to hear the Word of God proclaimed. They don't want to hear the truth. They don't want to hear that what they're doing is sinful and that they need to turn to God. No, they want to figure out every way they possibly can to make their sin more acceptable in their own eyes and to quiet their own consciences. And they can do that by ignoring the Word of God. They can do that by surrounding themselves with with bad friends or with uh, uh, entertainment that is questionable. And people can also do that by trying to put leadership in positions to condone sin, to try to make sin legal, if you will. Because people think that if they can make sin legal, that that somehow makes it right. You can see there's a lot of parallels with what Zechariah's audience is doing compared to what our people in our own day are doing, right? The big movement right now is to make all kinds of gross, horrible, terrible sins legal, in order to quiet the consciences of sinners. And folks, we can't do that. We cannot do that. Because if we do that, we bring upon ourselves the wrath and the judgment of God described in our passage today as well as in the passage that we're going to look at next week. We'll see what, how God is going to respond to the people of Israel, rejecting Zechariah's exposure of their wicked leaders. Sin brings judgment. It's as simple as that. Zechariah's audience is going to face some of that judgment unless they repent. And that's the same story as us today, isn't it? All of us are sinners And we have brought God's judgment upon ourselves for our sin, for our willful rebellion against his law. And praise God today that those of us who have put our faith and our trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ are forgiven. I know we say this all the time, but just hear it for the first time again, if you will. We, as believers in Jesus Christ, are forgiven You, if you trust in Christ, are forgiven of your sin. And that is the great gospel message of scripture. And I'm so thankful that I don't have to face that judgment that Zechariah describes here. Let's pray and thank God for this. Oh God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Zechariah. And we thank you for the message here for us that sin brings judgment. Sin brings judgment, Lord. We know that. Lord, we pray, first and foremost, that you would continue to strengthen our knowledge of the gospel and our commitment to your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us truly to be thankful for this gospel, not to take it for granted, to love this forgiveness that we have in your son. Lord, we thank you profusely for that. And we pray also, Lord, that you'd help us to understand this lesson that we learn here about leadership. That as leaders, in whatever capacity that you have placed us in, whatever position we happen to be in, whether it's in the family or in the business or in the church or wherever else, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be selfless leaders. Help us to seek the good of those whom we lead, not simply the good of ourselves. Help us not to be the wicked shepherds, but rather help us to be after the image of you, the good shepherd. We pray all these things in the holy and the precious name of Jesus. Amen.